Lord Jesus, we thank you for this season, uh, this season of expectation and waiting. Jesus, I thank you that you are the one that inspires us to wait, to seek. And now, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to believe, to hear your word, and uh, Lord, maybe even become the incarnation of your word. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. About 30 years ago, I was uh, the youth pastor at Community Presbyterian Church in Danville, California. My job was to evangelize the youth of the church and evangelize the youth in the Danville community. Bert Decker was a friend and a father to one of the kids in uh, the youth group and really nationally known for his public speaking seminars. And he paid for me to go to one of his public speaking seminars in downtown uh, San Francisco. Uh, it's geared toward the, the business community, but of course I was coming as a youth pastor to San Francisco, which was a lot like Babylon or Athens or, or Rome. The first day, our instructor taught us about persuasive speech. It was on persuasive speech, and he asked us to prepare a persuasive speech for the following day. He asked that we choose a theme, you know, inherent to our profession, and I thought, well, no problem. So I, I came with my speech prepared the, the following day. He then began to teach us about the importance of eye contact. He told us that it's uh, really important to try to make eye contact with everybody in the room while you're speaking. And he also said that each of our persuasive speeches must end with uh, a commitment, a tangible, concrete commitment that we ask the listeners to uh, commit to. And then right before we began, he said, and oh yeah, I'm gonna add a little, fun, a little fun twist to the assignment. If the person giving the speech maintains three seconds of eye contact with you during the speech, then at the end of their speech, you have to publicly agree to whatever they asked of you uh, for a concrete commitment. I swallowed hard and began to sweat. Because see, everyone there, everyone there was selling something. For instance, one lady got up and gave a speech on a credit union and then asked, uh, so who would like to join Catelco Credit Union? And then we went around the room, all of us, and uh, if she had maintained three seconds of eye contact, we would say, yes, I would like to join Catelco Credit Union. One gal worked at a vineyard, and we had to go around and say, yes, I will sample the Chardonnay. Another guy worked at the phone company. I remember we went around the room and said, why, yes, I would like to sign up for Advantage Calling. And so it went until it was my turn. I had prepared a message on the need to commit to Jesus the Christ as your Savior and Lord. And it was too late to change. So I gave the speech. And it was a, it was a great speech. I got to the end and realized that the only logical thing to ask them to commit to was Jesus. <laughs> and so I said, um, okay, uh, so uh, who or will you, will you commit to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Now, 
if you look up the word awkward in the dictionary, there will be a description of what happened next. To my wonder, horror, amusement, and embarrassment, I discovered that I had maintained three seconds of eye contact with everyone in the room that day. And so I had to watch as everyone in the room, all 15 or so, one after another, had to, I had to watch them fidget and squirm and roll their eyes and then say things like, yeah, um, okay, I guess, yeah, I commit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. <sighs> okay, I, I got the phone thing, I'll taste the Chardonnay, and Jesus is Savior and Lord. Every one of them, all of them, all of them said they committed, that they gave their life to Jesus, 100% conversion rate. I mean, I am quite the evangelist. Every one of them, all of them, every one of them. And yet it seemed as if something was missing, like faith and hope and love. They packed up their notebooks and left, and not one of them said, hey, dude, thanks for the eternal life. And it was over. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't make this whole thing more obvious? I mean, you've had to have wondered that, right? So that people really have no choice but to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord? I mean, why isn't there some simple watertight proof of the existence of God? So that faith is the absolutely obvious and only solution to a problem that could be written out like on a chalkboard. Why, why couldn't I go to downtown San Francisco, Athens, or Rome and say, um, Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead. Do your thing, Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus would materialize, blow crap up. And, and then I'd say, yeah, believe in Jesus. People would drop to the ground saying, I believe, I believe. And yes, I do, I will, I will sign up for the new members course. Why couldn't I do that? Why wouldn't that happen? Friend emailed me last week saying, Peter, why won't Jesus talk to me? I mean, he was at the point of desperation. I think I spent the first 30 years of my life asking that question. And this is the weird thing, but during that time, I thought I knew what God was doing. And yet I wondered if he even existed. Now I know he exists, but I'm always wondering what he's doing. Why is he like that? About 30 years ago, I had some experiences that I just couldn't explain away. And now I get really frustrated that he doesn't just do them all the time. I mean, I know God is there, and I know God can make himself obvious. I know he can make his presence obvious. And so I wonder, why are you asking me to preach? Right? I mean, that just seems like a stupid idea. Why are you asking me to feel after you in the hopes that I might find you and have something absolute, or at least somewhat meaningful to say about you? Why don't you rend the heavens and come down like Isaiah 64 that Chris preached a wonderful sermon about last, last week? Why, why don't you make it obvious so people have to repent? What are we doing here? <laughs> why am I here? Why are any of us here in this world of ambiguity and confusion and doubt? You know, God makes his presence absolutely obvious in, in places in the Old Testament, like, like the parting of the Red Sea. And everybody repents. 
but not really in the way God wants them to repent, and then they all die in the desert. I mean, he, he made it obvious through the miracles of Jesus, and yet they crucified him. <laughs> right? They all shouted, Hosanna, 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 and then when there was no sign, crucify, crucify, crucify. In the Revelation, he basically just blows the hell out of everything. You remember, we studied it. Blows the crap out of everything, and nobody, nobody repents until at the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, we meet the Word. Well, anyway, I preached in San Francisco, and 100% said the words, but I don't think anyone actually repented. In Acts chapter 17, Paul preached in Athens, but it was a rather different kind of sermon. In fact, a lot of Bible commentators think that Paul failed in Athens. Why? Because he didn't quote the Bible. And yet what he said is now the Bible. And some people repented. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that was Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked, paroxino. It's where we get our word paroxysm. He had a fit of anger within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he cried out, repent or suffer the judgment of God. Doesn't say that, right? Verse 17. So he reasoned, dialogomai, dialogued, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, the Agora, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. You know, it was Paul's practice to go to the synagogue and speak from the Scriptures with the Jews, but in Athens he also went to the marketplace and began dialoguing with pagan philosophers. Why is he dialoguing with them instead of monologuing like me in San Francisco? For a Jew, Athens was like the heart of the evil empire. The reason the New Testament is written in Greek and not Hebrew is due to the fact that in 332 B.C., Jerusalem was conquered by Alexander the Great. In 175 B.C., the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes IV outlawed the worship of Yahweh, massacred thousands of Jews, and sacrificed pigs on the altar of incense in the temple before a statue of Zeus that he had erected in the holy place. The Jews referred to it as the abomination of desolation. This is the Areopagus in the heart of Athens, also called Mars Hill. Ares is uh, Greek for the Latin word Mars, and Mars, or Ares, is the god of war. In Paul's day, it was a tradition to take the, command, the conquered commanders of foreign armies and ritually strangle them before a statue of, of Mars, or Ares, the god of war. The Areopagus uh, also came to be known as um, the place of the council. So the name Areopagus referred to the hill, and it also referred to the council that met on the hill that, that ruled Athens. The Areopagus was the heart of Athens, and Athens was the heart of the evil empire, and yet Athens is also the birthplace of Western civilization. Athens had been home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Plato and Socrates, if you've ever taken a little philosophy, you know that they're the, the fathers of a priori 
reasoning. That's just like simple logic, like mathematics. And Aristotle is a father of a posteriori reasoning. That's empiricism or the scientific method. They all postulated an unknown, uncreated creator, not a god, but the god. They referred to this god not as, as Zeus, but as Theos. Socrates was tried and executed in Athens for refusing to acknowledge uh, the Athenian pantheon, the, idol the, the gods of the city, and, and uh, because he corrupted the youth by talking to them about this Theos. About 150 years after that, after Socrates and Plato, Epicurus and Zeno taught what was known as Epicureanism and Stoicism, respectively. Epicureans believed that the good is about maximizing pleasure, not just for yourself, but everyone. In fact, some of the Epicureans would argue that the greatest pleasure is maximizing pleasure for all, which sounds pretty American, right? Stoics believed that the good is virtue. So they had a lot of faith in, in reason, that is, the logos, or as it's translated in English Bibles, the word. Many believe that in every person there is like a seed of reason, and this reason is, is fire. And they argued that we all come from that fire and would return to that fire, and God is that fire. We are indeed his offspring, wrote one of their poets named Aratus. The philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics were very refined. And yet, at the core, for Epicureans, the good was pleasure. And for the Stoics, it was virtue. Epicureans, then, are like those that look at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and see that it's good for food and a delight to the eyes, and so you should take it. Stoics are those that look to the fruit of the tree and see that it's, well, it's desired to make one wise, so you should take it and use it to make yourself wise. Like all of us, the Epicureans and the Stoics desired the good, but neither knew exactly what or who the good is. And I imagine that both of them would make sacrifice to the idols. That is, anything that might help them get what they wanted, the good. Well, Paul dialogued with all of them. He dialogued with all, all of them as if he knew something about them, as if something was hidden in them that they were like not aware of themselves. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they referred to Jesus and the resurrection as foreign divinities. In other words, they thought these things, they really have little to do with us here in Athens. I imagine that it's what those businessmen and women in San Francisco thought about what I was saying to them. It has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's some foreign divinity. And they took him and brought him, verse 19, to the Areopagus. Now that makes sense, right? For what do you do with foreign divinities? You go to war with foreign divinities using your own divinities. Jesus versus Mars, the god of war. This should be good. They took him and brought him to Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this teaching, this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange thing to our ears.
We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And why did he do that? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Eureka. It's where we get our word. Eureka means I found it. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, genos or genos, is where we get the word genesis and genetics. We ought not to think of that divine being, theon, which can be translated divinity or brimstone, wild word. We ought to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness in or with a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance. Pistis is the Greek. Everywhere else is translated faith. Of this he has given faith to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, from the council, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, there is so much meat in those verses. We'll have to come back to it next week. But for now, maybe we could just chew on this thought. God made from one man, and you know, in Hebrew, the word that you would use to say that is Adam. From one Adam, all the nations of mankind, which in Hebrew is also Adam, or Ha-Adam, the Adam, Made from one, all the nations of mankind. Why did he do this? That they should seek him. So do you ever ask, why do I exist? Well, here's the answer. So that you would seek the one who made you. And do you ever wonder, well, why doesn't, he just make it obvious. Here's also the answer. You don't seek what you've already found, right? I mean, when I have my car keys in my hand, 
I usually don't look for my, well, I usually don't look for my car keys, but if I'm looking at my car, I know they're in my hand, I don't, I don't go looking for them. I also probably don't stop and say, oh God, thank you so much for my car keys. And yet, sometimes I do that. When? After they've been lost and yet found. And you see, they've never been found unless I sought them. Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search them out. So it should be no surprise that science has flourished most extravagantly in theistic countries. For we believe that the theos, the theos has spoken a, a logos, and so there is a cause or a reason for everything and even for nothing. And, and you see, it's also rather silly that for some, science then has become an idol. Or hear people say things like, well, I believe in science. Well, everybody believes in science to some degree. It's simply the study of cause and effect. But no one can believe in science to the final degree. Our hearts know this, and philosophers have always wrestled with this. Thomas Aquinas uh, put it this way. He said, imagine the sum total of everything that's been caused. That would include what? Like uh, biology, evolution, genetics, um, the Big Bang, you. He said, imagine the sum total of everything that's been caused. Now, what caused everything that's been caused? He said, that would have to be like some sort of uncaused cause that caused science, that is, everything that's caused. Well, Paul says that God made us all to seek, and so it makes sense that all creation is meant to help us seek the uncaused cause. I find it absolutely delightful that modern physics has traced several strings of cause and effect, back to the point where there is no cause and effect. Why? Because there's no time. There's only something like an I am. And so folks will ask this stupid question. What came before the Big Bang? But physicists argue that time itself began at the Big Bang. So there's no before the Big Bang, just some sort of uncaused cause like an I am. And then it really gets weird, for not only is there an uncaused cause behind all things, there's something like an uncaused cause in every physicist, in every person, in every baby. We call it consciousness. That's the popular new word. The old word is spirit. It's like the I that I am. It's the I that observes me, this like bag of dust going through space and, and time, and this I that I am appears to be more foundational than anything in all creation. For in some crazy way, according to quantum physicists, I shape reality. Or at least collapse the quantum state of sub, I mean, everybody, it's just a mystery. Well, it's the I that I am that's doing all this seeking, right? I seek. And now it's too difficult for human words before, because I am seeking, I am that I am. I am like the breath of I am that I am seeking my source, the, the lungs that, that bore me. Well, anyway, 
It was Socrates, actually, that pointed out that all learning is seeking. And if you think about it, all learning ends in finding something we call the truth, which in itself is like the uncaused cause, because there is no truth about truth, right? You can't say, is truth true? There's no truth about truth. Truth just is truth. It's the reason, the logos. So anyway, Paul says, God made us all to seek and, and look all over the world, it's working, right? Wherever you go, people are seeking. God made us all to seek. All over the world, it's seeking. And as we said, we only seek what we don't have, like the car keys, and yet we only seek what we once had, or at least we knew once existed. For instance, no one looks for the car keys if they never had any car keys. <laughs> and they never believed there were such things as cars or keys. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. A person cannot possibly seek what he knows. And just as impossibly, he cannot seek what he does not know. For what he knows, he cannot seek since he knows it. And what he does not know, he cannot seek because after all, he does not even know what he is supposed to seek. Socrates thinks through the difficulty by means of the principle that all learning and seeking are but recollection. That is, remembering. And Jesus, the way, the truth, the light, the life, and the word said, do this in remembrance of me. What if we're remembering more than one supper in one room 2,000 years ago? What if with every breath we take, we're remembering him and our own creation? Well, it was Socrates that pointed out that we wouldn't look for something that didn't exist. So why do people everywhere look for God if there is no God? Why do people everywhere look for truth if there is no such thing as truth, the Word of God? And you see, it does no good to say something like, well, evolution, because that just begs the question, well, what's the cause of evolution? And if you how would you know that it's true? Well, anyway, I'll stop being all philosophical now. And I'll try to say this another way. We're each like the little bird in the children's book, Are You My Mother? Do you remember this book? Everybody, this is my favorite book as a little kid. The little bird hatches while the mother is away. And so he goes on an adventure, asking a kitten, a hen, a dog, a cow, a boat, and a steam shovel, are you my mother? And in the end, he finds his mother because his mother finds him. Last week, I drove by my, well, one of my old houses where I lived, and I thought about my kids. I thought about Susan. I thought about my mom and my dad, who's been gone 16 years now. And I felt such an indescribable ache as I realize that I'm always, I'm always looking for something. And the closest thing that I can find to a description of what that something is, is my father's lap. I mean, 
I can still smell his aftershave. I can feel the cool fabric of his suit coat upon my cheek as he enfolded me in his arms. When I was on his lap, I belonged. I mean, every care, I remember that every care would just evaporate out of this five-year-old body. I was home. Yet I've discovered that that experience of home was still just a shadow of my true home. And maybe an even deeper memory. Now your father's lap may have been a terror or it may have been non-existence, and, and, and yet you still, know, you still know the longing that I'm speaking of, right? You have it. Paul writes that God made us to seek. Jesus even commands us to seek. And yet, have you ever noticed that neither of them really tell us how to seek? In the Old Testament, he says, seek with your whole heart. But I think that just really means seek with everything that you've got. And I think, you, I see, I think the fact that he doesn't really tell us so much how to seek, but that we should seek indicates that there's a purpose in just the seeking. That is, we don't seek just to find. We seek in order to find in a new way, to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In the words of T.S. Eliot. And that's why every good parent plays hide-and-seek with their children. The psalmist cries out, Oh, Lord, why do you hide your face from me? Yet every good parent hides their face from their baby. It's called peekaboo. Last year, I discovered that there were entire websites just devoted to peekaboo with videos of parents hiding their faces, hiding their, their presence, to use the biblical word, and then all of a sudden revealing their presence to their babies, and the babies laughing with delight. In fact, every time that they would hide their, their presence and then reveal their presence, the, like the baby's sorrow got filled with this greater joy that led to a greater, greater delight until the baby was just squealing with delight, and then the baby would start playing peekaboo. Psychologists argue that peekaboo is integral to a baby's development because it teaches a child this thing called object permanence. That is that that person is still there even when I'm not looking at them. They don't go, they don't, they don't go away. And, and it teaches grace that the other isn't simply an object but a subject who chooses to reveal themselves um, to, to you. It teaches that the presence of the other is grace. When my kids were little, their favorite game was hide-and-seek, but a particular form of hide-and-seek that I think I've told you about, it was called Monster. The way we'd play is that they'd send me down to the dark basement to hide, and then they'd come down the stairs looking for me in the dark, you know, behind the water heater, behind some old boxes or something. You see, they were looking for me, where? In the place of their deepest fear. And when they'd spot me, I'd just jump out of ground and blow bubbles on their tummies and they'd squeal with delight and then they'd say, do it again, do it again. We'd start over. It was as if their deepest pleasure in life was finding me in the place of their greatest fear. Maybe there are places in your soul that are like my basement. There is a legend that God once sought the advice of a wise man. He said, 
to the wise men, I would like to play a game of hide-and-seek with mankind, with Ha'adam. I've asked the angels where to hide. Some say the depths of the ocean. Some say the highest mountain. Some say the dark side of the moon. Some say the farthest star. But what would you suggest? Hide in the human heart, said the wise man. That's the last place they'll think to look. Sometimes when we would play monster, the kids would get too scared. Or, you know, they'd get tired and just begin to give up. And so I'd bump a box. Or I'd maybe cough a little bit or sniffle just to give myself away. The great medieval German mystic Meister Eckhart said, God is like a person who clears his throat while hiding and so gives himself away. Why is it that you seek the truth? Why is it that you long for love or even ask the question, where's God? What's the point? What's the reason? What's the logos? What if that were the logos? Giving himself away in the basement of your soul. I would not seek you, wrote Augustine, if I had not found you already in the depth of my heart. You know, every couple at some point in their relationship, hopefully at all points in their relationship, they play a little game called hide-and-seek. I think the other name for it is romance. And every good father romances his children at least a bit. I think my favorite memory of my son Coleman is of one particular day when he must have been ninth or 10th grade. So he was about 15, relishing his newfound independence from me, eagerly anticipating the day he'd get his driver's license. But this day, we went for a bike ride, and we found the entrance to this new sewer line that construction workers had just installed under the streets in the parking lot of the Home Depot near my house, just over the other side of a fence that happened to be easy to climb. And so I said, Coleman, let's go in. And of course, we did. I led, and Coleman followed. We crawled for a long, long time. I mean, it must have been several hundred yards until it was absolutely, I mean, have you ever been in a place like this? It was so black. It was absolutely pitch black. You would think that you were utterly lost and absolutely alone except for the comforting sound of your partner's voice there in the darkness. At one point, I was able to crawl ahead of Coleman a bit, and I stopped breathing, or I at least tried to hold my breath. I stopped speaking. I stopped making noise. I just sat there, and I waited, and then I heard my independent, self-sufficient teenage son say, Dad? But I didn't answer. And they said, Dad? Dad, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? Dad? Dad? Dad, where are you? But, but I didn't say a thing. He started screaming, Dad, this isn't funny! Dad, 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 where are you? And I could feel his breath. I could feel his breath on my face. I mean, he was only inches away. I could see the numbers on his wristwatch. You know, he was just a few inches from my, inches from my face, and he's screaming, Dad, 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 at the top of his lungs! And then he stopped. And I whispered, Hey, Coleman. It was epic. It was just awesome. Eureka. It's one of our best memories. We enjoy each other more now than we did before because I hid. 
And Coleman sought me in the dark, feeling his way toward me in the hope that he might find me. And I found his heart. Eureka. My grown son was once again longing to sit on my lap. And isn't that pretty much what every father wants? He seeks children that would seek himself. Not just his gifts, but his presence. Rabbi Baruch's grandson, Yehiel, was playing hide-and-seek with a neighbor boy. He hid, and, and then he waited, and he waited, and he, he waited for this neighbor boy to, to find him. When he finally came out, he realized that the neighbor boy had never even looked. He ran to his grandfather, told him his sorrow, then sat on his lap weeping. And then the old rabbi began to weep as he realized, God says the same thing. I hide, and nobody even wants to look, to seek, to find me. Now, that's not just an old story. That's Psalm 14, 2, 53, 2, and Romans 3, 11. No one seeks for God. It's also Genesis 2, 18. It's the first thing that God declares not good. Adam, mankind, is alone. Why? Because he doesn't seek anyone other than himself. This is the shocking reality that emerges from studying the text. Adam is alone, and he can't find his helper because he's not seeking. It's revealed that God is Adam's helper, his azer. Eliezer means God is my help. Eve is not Adam's helper. Adam is not Eve's helper. But each of them are signs pointing to humanity's true helper, our husband, our helper, who is God. In Genesis 2, Adam is seeking and Adam isn't seeking, I'm sorry. Genesis 2, that's the problem. He's not seeking, but how could he seek? He doesn't know what to seek. He doesn't know the good, and his helper is the good. So now his helper will help Adam know his need for the helper, and in doing so, his helper will make himself fit for the Adam. He'll make himself good for Adam. So God puts the Adam to sleep, and he begins to write the gospel. He makes the Adam male and female, and he appears to leave them alone with an evil talking snake and a tree in the middle of the garden. Two trees that look like one tree, or one tree that acts like two, depending on how you take it. On the tree is fruit. It's wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is like the living knowledge of good and evil. It's the knowledge of good and evil, and it's life. Jesus is the life, and the helper made fit for us. He's our bridegroom, given to us, betrothed to us. Where? On a tree, in a garden. John chapter 19. Well, the Adam doesn't seek. Humanity does not seek, and yet God makes us to seek. How does he do that? Well, in Athens, you see, they sought. Actually, they had been seeking for hundreds of years, and well, Paul found evidence to that fact, for he found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. 
from the works of Diogenes Lortius, I don't know if I'm saying that right, third century Greek historian, and some comments by Plato, Aristotle, and a few others, we actually know a little bit more about that altar than just what's revealed in the book of Acts. It's, it's what Paul must have learned as he dialogued. Around 600 years before Paul arrived in Athens, a plague had fallen on the city. Sacrifices were made before every altar, before every idol, and nothing would stop the devastation. Horrified, the Areopagus, the council on Mars Hill, they sent a man named Nicias on a desperate journey to the Pythian Oracle, where a pagan priestess informed Nicias that Athens was being punished for the sins of their former king. The Oracle directed Nicias to find a man named Epimenides who lived on the island of Crete, saying that he would know how to make atonement. You remember that Paul quotes um, the Stoic poet Aratus in Acts 17, we are indeed his offspring, but he also quotes Epimenides. Epimenides is the Greek poet from Crete who, who wrote a poem declaring that although some Cretans thought they had buried Zeus, Zeus couldn't die, and then Epimenides writes this, for in you we live and move and have our being. Well, Nicias found Epimenides, brought him to Athens, where he met with the council on Mars Hill and proposed the idea that there was, there was a god, that there must be a god that the Athenians did not know. And then he proposed that maybe this god was great enough and good enough to forgive their sins and stop the plague if they would only seek his favor. And so he instructed them that day on Mars Hill to release a flock of lambs over, over the hill. And then he prayed that this god would choose his atonement. And then wherever a lamb would lie down, they would build an altar and sacrifice to that God. And as they did, according to the legend, the plague began to lift. Over the centuries, the altars fell into disrepair. But at some point in that 600 years, one of these altars was maintained and preserved, apparently with the hope that one day this unknown God would choose to make himself known somehow. And that if he, he did, the Athenians would remember that he was no stranger to their city, not a foreigner, but that with lamb's blood, once before, he had redeemed them from a curse. You can read about that from a lot of different sources. One of the best, I think, is the book Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson's, but, it, but it's incredible to, to think about. For at least 600 years before Paul arrived in Athens, God had been at work there building an altar on Mars Hill of all places. He used his words spoken through pagan poets like Epimenides and Aratus, even philosophers like Socrates and, and Plato, even pagan idols that broke the hearts of their worshipers, even a plague that ravaged the city, all to build an altar all to make them seek, for all along he had been seeking them, that they would seek him, find him, and know his joy. Eureka! Do you suppose that there was or is an altar like that in San Francisco? Because if there is, I'd probably have to dialogue in order to find it. Do you suppose that there's an altar like that in every city? Maybe every city in every nation. 
You know, there was in Persia. That's why the wise men came seeking the baby. And just think about it. God used the stars to build that altar. He used pagans to build that altar. I imagine he used Zoroastrianism. It was the religion of Persia at the time. Zoroaster prophesied a Messiah. It's remarkable. Maybe there's an altar in every country, every city, and every heart. Maybe God even uses idolatry to build them. I mean, it's when your old idols, they no longer satisfy that you go looking for a new God, right? The, the unknown God. It's when the idolatry of sex leaves people battered and broken that they begin to look for love. It's when alcohol has ravaged the soul that the soul seeks a, a deeper form of communion. Maybe God is building an altar right now. Is there a plague? <laughs> I mean, this COVID makes you think about death, doesn't it? And what do you do? You long for the life. A plague of lying politicians, what does that make you long for? The truth, gosh, if they're just it's the truth. The plague of confusion, it makes you long for what? The way. Maybe bad government makes us long for a different government, like, you know, a prince of peace, a wonderful counselor. And God, it'd be great if the government was on his shoulders. Maybe the manger is like an altar. And in every heart there is a manger. And in every manger miraculously appears a baby. And that baby is the lamb. Well, that's the introduction to my sermon. <laughs> now we don't have any more time. So I'm just going to have to leave you with this thought that we'll come back to next week. So God not only builds the altar, but this is the thought. He provides the lamb. And this is what I mean by that. Number one, God arranges situations in which we need to seek. Do you realize that this entire world is like an altar to the unknown God? And still, we don't seek. We don't repent. But number two, God provides the lamb. By that, I mean he even gives us the desire to seek. I think that desire is called faith and probably hope and most definitely love. When Adam left the garden, which was leaving the manifest presence of love, it was leaving what? The lap of the Father. When Adam left the garden, he was enslaved to himself and his own desires, and so he was doomed to be forever alone. And yet when Adam, which is Adam and Eve, when humanity left the garden, when Adam left the garden, something left with him, actually in him. It was the fruit that had been hanging on that tree. It was a seed. Humanity took the good from the tree, ate it, and everything died, but it was an eternal seed. And it comes to life and turns into a kingdom. 
Do you understand that faith, hope, and love in you is the breath of God within you? It's the Spirit of Jesus in you. It's the eternal seed rising within you. Paul said to the Athenians, God does not dwell in temples made by man. The gospel revelation is that man is the temple in which God dwells. So where is he, you ask? Well, he must be hiding in the Holy of Holies behind a curtain in the temple of your soul. Remember this cartoon? Have you found Jesus? Do you see him behind the curtain? What's he doing? Well, I think he's probably sniffling or coughing or bumping some boxes. He's giving himself away and he's, he's whispering, hey, Peter, you're losing it. <laughs> Why don't you talk to me? You're lonely. Why don't you look for me? You're sad. I know it's frightening, but why don't you look in your basement? <laughs> or maybe out back in, in the manger. You're feeling shame, aren't you? Oh, would you, you just tell me about it? Confess it to me, and oh, you'll see the curtain rip from the top to the bottom, and you'll discover grace. For I long to clothe you with myself. You're dying. <laughs> Don't worry. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you'll hear me calling. Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. <laughs> you know, I've looked it up. You know what the scholars think that phrase really means? They, they think it's all ye, all ye, the outs in free. <laughs> all ye, all ye, outs in free, yelled by children at the end of the game. <laughs> Eureka! So anyway, some of you are seeking God, thinking he'll never be found. But you see, just the fact that you're seeking means he's hiding behind the curtain in your basement. And some of you are asking the question, why doesn't God talk to me? Well, I'm convinced that you can only ask that question because he is. He's whispering even now. What's he whispering? Oh, come on. Don't give up. Keep seeking. Seek, seek, seek. Seek, seek me, and you will find. For I've already found you, and I'm always seeking your heart. And that's why on the night that he was betrayed on a hill far scarier than Mars Hill, the truth 
took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the covenant marriage in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins drink of it all of you and do it in remembrance of me and so we invite you to come forward you know and get the little cup you know the drill then you can come back and sit at your seat take your mask off but what you need to do is is take take the seed and ingest it into your basement. <laughs> when did this happen? Now. And at the foundation of the world. See, I think he's telling us the story of who we are. <laughs> so believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Father, I need to thank you for the number one thing that I complain to you about. Thank you, Father, for playing hide-and-seek with me. <laughs> and I pray you'd forgive me, Jesus, for wanting to quit. Thank you for giving yourself away, for revealing that you're good, that no matter how deep I, I go into the basement, you're, you're in front of me and behind me and all around me, and you love me. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we'll uh, keep talking about this because I just, you know, today talked about the fact that everywhere he's building an altar, and then he provides the lamb the desire to love. Now, I, um, some people say, Peter, you, you don't think the cross matters. And I just, I just freak out. I'm going, it's the only thing that matters. Not only is this how God saves you, this is how the baby gets in the manger in the first place. This is the judgment of God. This is the boundary of space, time, and eternity. This is the heart of your Father. So believe. And then people say, well, what difference does that make? Well, you're going to have to play hide-and-seek whether you want to or not. That's just the reality. We're here. But you see, if you know who's hiding, well, then you can enjoy the game. <laughs> and so in the name of Jesus... May you look for him and enjoy the game because he's always found you and he's always seeking your heart. In his name, amen.